Maybe you can give me your own bio. How's that? Hmm. I was born in Vancouver. I left Vancouver when I was 14 years old and moved to Toronto. Stayed here for a year and then moved down to New York with my mother. That bio has become a book. <laughs> so that's my, my first book, the one that Tim published uh, last year. Tim Inkster with Jim the Porcupine yes. Quill. Yes. Okay. And what's uh, that called? It's called Little Comrades. Okay. And that takes you up to? Up to almost 20. Okay. So after that, my life changed. When I left Vancouver, my mother had said to me, I'm leaving. You want to come? And I said, yes. So then we were in New York, and she said, I'm going to England. You want to come? And I said, no. At age 20? At age 20, yes. She decided to go to England, and I decided I really needed to put down some roots and stay put and do things. (laughs) Age 20. Um, when I was 24, I got, well, I got married. My husband was in the design business, editorial business, corporate identity, corporate publications business. And so the house was always full of printers and designers. My mother had been a writer and always worked on newspapers. So it wasn't the house was full, but there's always talk from her. Yeah, in the air. In the yeah. air. So in 1963, when I was at that point a single parent in desperate need of a job, I got the perfect job at Doubleday in New York was a job that required somebody who had a knowledge of printing and publishing terminology. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to know the words. And I knew all the words because they were all all around because of printers and designers and my mother and everybody talking. So I knew about typesetting and I knew what galleys were and I knew what proofs were and I knew just generally the, the whole process. Why did you have to know the words? Ah. Because the job at uh, Doubleday was a liaison between their design and production departments and their printing plants. They weren't allowed to speak to each other because they spoke completely different languages. Mm. And one could say something to the other that would cost thousands of dollars. You know? And they would know, have no <laughs> Chase idea. Chase red to blue. You know. Now. So I was on the phone. Every morning I got a phone call from the printing department and they would ask me questions and I'd write all the questions down and then it was my job to run around and get answers to the questions and call them back in the afternoon and give them the answers and ask them any questions that the other the designer production people had. So it was this wonderful, wonderful liaison job, mm-hmm. absolutely marvelous. And so you, I, were, you were crucial. I was, uh, yeah, it was great. So I could go and Smithsburg would ask me, okay, when are we going to get the silver prints on the something job. So I would go to the design department and say, Smithsburg wants to know when they're going to get the silver prints on the something job, and what's a silver print? And so I learned and learned and learned, and I was fascinated by the design process and hung out in the design department and made friends with all this stuff. And I also went to school, went to NYU, and did a a program they had on printing processes and materials, because I've always been interested in the technology. I did all that stuff. So I did that with Doubleday for a couple of years and then made the decision that I really needed to come back to Canada. I needed to come home. It was complicated. Living in New York was hard. My professional competition at Doubleday came from young women who were fresh out of Radcliffe from Primar, um, who could work all the hours that, that were in the day and they could live three in an apartment and share the expenses. I was a single parent on my own with nothing. And back then, very, very difficult. And so professionally, that was next to impossible. So my mother had come back from England and was in Toronto. My brother had come back from Cyprus and was in Toronto. So we were beginning to form a family base. 
I got my daughter into a summer camp outside Toronto, and that was what started it all. So she was in summer camp. And my mother said, while you're up here, why don't you go around and see if there, you know, I could set up some interviews maybe and do something like that. Because she had been, she was very involved in publishing. So one of the interviews I had was with Frank Newfeld. This is great. Was he working for M&S he was at, at that M&S, point? Yes, yeah. he was art okay. director at M&S then. That was, this was 1963. He said they were going to be doing some restructuring their department. Well, he interviewed me, asked me all sorts of questions, and one of the things he asked me was if I knew anything about typography. And I said, well, I think I could probably tell you the difference between six-point and 72-point. <laughs> the language was right. The numbers were right. We were still talking in the days of metal. There is no such thing as 70-point. The numbers I gave him were real numbers that existed in metal. So you knew what you were talking yes, about, and he recognized that. Yes, I knew what I was talking about, and he recognized that. Yeah. You know, okay. so I think I told him I could tell the difference between a serif and a sans serif, too. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so Frank offered me a job in this reorganization of his department. It's great. Great. So I made the decision. Okay, I'm going to move up. I'm moving back to Canada. It's time for me to do that. So I went back to New York. I quit my job, or I gave them notice, and I started the process of moving, and Frank was going to, be a, going to send me a letter to confirm this. Mm-hmm. So I went all through the process and waited for the letter and waited for the letter, and I quit my job, and I'm getting ready to move. And, and then I got the letter, and it said, really, gee, I'm sorry, Laurie. Oh, dear. <laughs> but I made the decision to come anyway, of course. So I came and went around job hunting. and to, Well, okay, one of the places I job hunted at was with Alan Fleming. He was then at McLaren's and also at Cooper and Beatty, some kind of cross appointment he did. McLaren's biggest advertising agency and he was the big name. Well, one of the things that stunned me was that I could phone him and get through to him and go to see him. And I didn't have to go through 14 secretaries. I mean, to do that in New York would be, you know. Yeah, well, today it's just impossible. Yes. That's yes. wonderful, isn't it? Yes, it is wonderful. So I talked to Alan, and I was unusual for the time in that, number one, I was a single parent. Yeah. And number two, I was, of necessity, ambitious and needed work. And I think he, he made a note of that, I think. And he liked that. That was, that was all good. But he had no work, of course, for me. When I saw him, he was at McLaren's. And, and he came to U of T Press about five years later, four or five years later. So I don't know. Maybe he went to Cooper and Beatty in that time. Yeah, okay. But I think he'd... I know he, he was in advertising because he said one of the reasons he decided to leave advertising was when one of the art directors came into his office and cried. <laughs> and so I saw other people around town, too. And then I had lunch with Frank... He took me out to lunch to apologize for having done all this. He said, oh, I messed your life up. But he gave me a list of other places that I could go to, people I could see. I probably got to Alan Fleming from Frank's list. My mother had also given me a list because she was in publishing. And what was your early impression of uh, Alan Fleming? Alan was, was dreamy. I mean, he was just, he was a lovely, bright, articulate guy. And he had style and panache. I think one of the things that sometimes happens is a designer will design themselves. Much like Byron, his his life is the poetry. Yes, I I mean life, but I also mean just visual style. He looked the part. He looked the part. Sometimes I dress myself, I'm aware of dressing myself as if I'm a book. You know, (laughs) know, (laughs) 
Uh, it's, it's all just seeing, it's seeing line and seeing color and seeing pattern and so on. Yeah. And you, you apply that, and designers apply it to all s- stages of their life, right. everything, all the pieces of their lives. The furniture, yeah, their yeah. clothing, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the car, yeah, the car, everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Alan had always been in love with books. Anyway, even when he was in advertising, yeah. he, he was he had a collection of all sorts of books in his house. He lived and worked in England. You know, he studied Oxford University Press and done all that stuff. Was fascinated by that, and he, for him, the idea of having a university press that he could design, you know, like designing for Oxford, Oxford UP, you know, yeah. to have a whole university press. Wow! So he approached U of T Press. They didn't approach him. Okay. Everything. So I job hunted and job hunted, and I went to see University of Toronto Press. What you want is a bio, and I'm giving you all this, all this stuff. Oh, this, is a, this is extended, but <laughs> okay, like an extended, extended preliminary. Okay, extended preliminary. Okay. Um, so I went to see U of T Press and was interviewed by them. And my background was interesting because I had the experience at Doubleday. One of the important things that, that was happening then was the technology was just changing. Changed from letterpress to offset everywhere in all the business. Mid-60s. Yes, mid-60s. And at Doubleday, one of the things that they were doing that they had to do was figure out how to convert from letterpress to offset the plates and the type and everything. So I knew all about that conversion process, too. And so I was familiar with both the technologies and with the conversion from one to the other. So that's great. Very important knowledge, useful knowledge. Yeah, timely. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I got to U of T Press. We didn't even talk that much about that. They just saw me, and I was somebody who understood production, and I was from New York, and I talked a good talk. The production assistant at U of T Press decided to move to, she was getting married and moved to Ottawa or something like that. And so they didn't quite realize it, but they had a job opening. And I was told to call U of T. So I called U of T. I went in for another interview with Eleanor Harmon, who was assistant director then. Well, they offered me a job starting the 1st of January. And I said, I'm sorry. I need a job right now. If you want me, you're going to have to do something now, because otherwise I'll keep looking. I can't wait. Well, they were stunned, of course. They took me on. The other thing that they were very concerned about was the fact that I had a child. Which what is none of their you, business. What will you, it back was then, then. Back then it, it was. was. Then. Yeah. Well, what will you do with your child during the day? Now they're not even allowed to ask. I said, well, she's in school during the day. What will you do if she's ill? And Eleanor Harmon held out to me the great example of her secretary. My secretary has three children, and you never hear a word about them. Mm-hmm. That was what it was like for women then. It was yeah. very hard. So they got, I got the job, but okay. the first two months I worked in the uh, printing department with the estimator. So I learned in detail some of the ways that things are put together. And I, it was it's a union shop, so I couldn't touch anything. Peter Dorn was working there then. Okay. I think, or had just started. Right. And Harold Krushenska, do you know his name? Yes, Wonderful definitely. book designer. Yeah. yeah. So he was there. He did the Gutenberg Galaxy. Gutenberg Galaxy. And he did that just about the time that I arrived. 
Well, you, you got books. there at 63. That's 63. right. I remember being in the printing department office then, sitting there and looking at Frank Newfield's, I think it was Spice Box of Earth, with the binding inside out, the, the crash on the outside. Oh, my God. Those were hugely yes. influential, huge. apparently. Yes, huge. What were they called? Design for Poetry? It was a series of four know. of them. But I, I, I remember being stunned by what Frank was doing. God, he was wonderful. And, and I think, I know Stan Bevington yeah. had the same reaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would have been exactly, that would have been 64 or thereabouts. 64, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I have such a clear memory of sitting up on this high stool with the sun coming in this window and opening this book. I'd like to hear about your take on mm-hmm. some of the designers and what their strengths were and also mm-hmm. which books of theirs that you were particularly impressed with. Mm-hmm. Oh, I worked on um, Eric Arthur's book that Paul Arthur designed, Toronto No Mean City, because that was one of the first offset books that the press was going to have to do. And so there's a lot of the technology involved, and I, you know, did my little job and told them, <laughs> told them they had to, I told them what to do with the photographs when you send them out, or when you have prints made. We put labels on the back of the photographs that show through that have a number on them, so that you can sort them by number. When the film comes back, you don't have to start identifying the image. You've got numbers that show up on the film. I mean, this was all brand new, brand new. And I said, ask them for a set of loose blues. They won't laugh at me. <laughs> Yu Zhang said, they won't laugh at me. I said, no, just say you want loose blues for the whole thing. You know, it was great. Anyway, technology. So I worked on that with Paul Arthur on this dad's book, Toronto No Mean City by Eric Arthur. And what was it about that book that was so memorable? Other um, than the fact that it was one of the first offset. First offset books. Was oh. it a beautiful book? It, it was. It was It was beautiful. And it was, the book was in a way structured, something about the column structure, because it was about architecture and full of photographs of buildings in Toronto. And the way Paul sort of set the columns, as my first encounter and maybe Toronto's first encounter with something called hanging shoulders, running heads out on the side this way. (laughs) And so the structure of this book and the columns and with the shoulders. Next, uh, Carl Dare had written a book. Design with the type? Design design with type. And University of Toronto Press was going to publish it, but they were terribly, terribly worried because Carl was a communist, you know. And so I did my, I have this old commie background, (laughs) it's all in the first book. I did my little innocent babe routine, I said, you mean he's, there's a communist typography, and he's written about communist typography? I said, no, well, no. But they really were concerned about whether they should publish this book by a red. They were concerned when he insisted that the end papers be read. And the book was printed in two colors, black and red. <laughs> yes. Anyway, but... And it won an, a, and it an won AIG design AIG award. AIG, yeah. It was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And groundbreaking, earth-shattering book. And why? In the way it talked about design, looking at design and looking at letter forms in terms of not merely size, but weight and structure, and and so that you, in a way, you look at the forms of type in the way you would look at any other forms. You see the difference between an orange and banana when you look at the structure of a printed letter. As it pertains to or suits 
the content? Well, no, no, he didn't even mean that. He just meant the way you put things together. You think about harmony and you think about contrast, you know, the contrast of size and contrast of structure and all. He mm-hmm. analyzed the design process and allowed you to sort of walk through it and see what it was all about and say, that's why that works, because they've used exactly the same structure and different sizes. Or they've used the same size and different structures, and they've done the bold and the light. And the, and the light. Um, it's really quite wonderful. So it uh, sort of dissected the process. Design with type, and yeah. that was about type, not about any other aspect, not of laying out the page or anything, but how type worked with type. And also explaining then, as you say, why a, a one page would appeal and yes. another page wouldn't. Well, it's not a question of appeal as much as, I think, a question of intent, of emphasis. I mean, sometimes you might have a page that you intend for some reason to be bland, so you can make it bland. Alan tells a story about designing Canada Year of the Land, and the first edition, I don't know if you know. I've got it, yeah. Okay. And what's the type? It's a calligraphic form. And he says he did that because the text was so bad. I've heard the story. <laughs> it was so bad, he wanted to make it hard to read. So the second edition, they actually retypeset it. <laughs> well, yeah, that, and, and that really anyway. gets to it, doesn't it? Yes. It's, it's the, I suppose Dare is saying that you really do, by using type, you have control over the yes. reception That's of right. the, that type. Exactly. Anyway, there okay. was, so there was Carl, and Carl was, had just come back to Toronto from Jamaica. He felt it was time to come home. I mean, he, he left during the Red Scare, I think. I mean, by the 60s, it was clearing up. You right. no longer quite had that, but it was hard. So he was gone for quite a while? Or? I think he was there for about 10 years. Yeah, okay. And, then, uh, and he was happy there. He liked Jamaica, and mm. he was designing their postage stamps and doing a lot of, sort of government work. They went through a nationalist phase, and... and jobs needed to go to Jamaicans and they had enough expats from other Brit countries you know so he came home in time to do this book he'd probably been writing it there I don't know Carl and I used to go out to lunch every now and then and he pretended that he was cheating on his wife he was so cute (laughs) he pretended he was flirting with me he was doing this thing I was this it was lovely he was a sweet sweet guy so that was a seminal book. So we've yes. now we've got a couple of important okay. books, right? We've, we've got, got a couple. Of, it's City. We've talked yeah. about that. We've talked about Canada, Year of the Land. Briefly. Yes, which uh, is, a, again, in your opinion, a seminal book. I think so, yes. And, uh, yes, because, I mean, Lorraine Monk at uh, National Film Board was part of this wonderful wave of recognizing Canadian artists. And for her, the art was photography. Yeah. And I, th- I know that Alan was very much involved in the selection of the photographs. You know, he wasn't just designing; he was art director on the on the project, and, and always was on his projects. Yeah. And the art director's job is big. So, any other books by Carl Dare that come to mind? No, you see, Carl then was not really designing books. I mean, he was designing the typeface. Yes, he was Cartier. designing Cartier. I don't know what commissions he had then, but he really wasn't involved in book design. He really wasn't a book guy. He's a type guy. Yeah. So, Sam Smart. Sam Smart was hugely influential. Before Alan came to the press, I was, I was sort of becoming an art director of sorts. Carl taught me a lot about design. What's, what's the most important lesson that he taught you? 
Alan taught the same lesson everybody taught. I taught look, look and see what you're seeing. Look and look, look at it and know what it is you're seeing. I mean, we look at things all the time. We don't see them. Um, what does that mean? So you see structure and you see line. And one of the lessons I don't even know if anybody taught me this, but one of the things that came to me that I knew is that a book is not a series of two-dimensional things. It's a, it's a three-dimensional object, and the the structure that you set goes through from the front to the back. Through all the different through pages. Through all the different. And this was was magical to understand that. At the time, U of T Press books were pretty dull. U of T had two quite good designers working for them, one of them excellent, Antje Lingner, N-T-J-E-L-I-N-G-N-E-R. She had trained in Europe, had a job originally like one of Alan's original jobs, designing ads for the classified yellow pages of the phone book. But Antje was a trained designer, and she could do good book design. But at the time, the designers never saw the manuscript. <laughs> they saw the designers were given the title page. Okay. So they so couldn't, they, re- couldn't read the book. They couldn't read the book. They didn't know anything mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And this was because the design was handled by the production manager. Well, I was then, I became assistant manager in the production department. And I started doing that differently. I, I, so I worked with the designers in different ways. Well, you let them in on the I content, them, I Yeah, guess. we talked about, and yes, they weren't going to read the whole book, but they wanted to see it, of course, and oh, find yeah. out what it was about. Understand it. Understand it. So gradually, it seemed to happen that the books that I was involved with looked better than the books that I was not involved with. UFG Press at the time had a superb editorial department. Wonderful. I was involved through Harold and uh, Harold Kraszynska and other people a little bit in the Designers Association. I was already sort of interested in sort of working my way in, was trying to figure out how to become a licentiate and, you know, all that stuff of the GDC. Do you, like, just before we go to there, though, do you have any recollection of a book that had your imprint on it that would give us an example of what impact you had? I can't, and it's not, it's not important, really. These are scholarly books we're talking about anyway. They're not massively designed. Yeah. They're not done for a, a mass audience. They're not going to sell a lot of copies. Anyway, I, I should say that I worked with Carl on his book quite closely. And one of the situations that happened with his book was that U of T Press had a union shop, and they set the type. So it's a union typesetting, and they're going to print it. And it's a union offset printing. And what's the stage in between? It has you have to do paste up. There was nobody at U of T Press who could do the kind of close work that was needed to paste up the book for, for printing. And besides that, Carl wanted to do it himself. But this is a union shop. What are you going to do? It means you're going to, and by the union rules, you weren't supposed to take something out of the shop, do something with it, and bring it back in. But Carl, because of his all commie background, they say, could go around and talk to the union reps involved and get an exemption to go through this. And it was the beginning of many exemptions that acknowledged that doing paste-up on a book or a cover or anything else was the job of an artist, that it was an art thing and not just a technical thing. Which is revolutionary, yes, for, at least yes, for that press. That's right. So the effect of Carl's book and of my working with Carl on his book 
on the production department was that my status improved mm -hmm. considerably. U of T Press had at that time one of the great editorial departments, well-known, well-recognized, won all sorts of awards for the academic quality of their books. I talked to the production manager and tried to work with her to try to improve the quality of design. It wasn't going anywhere. Nothing was going to happen with her. I wrote a letter to Marsha Honoré. said, you know, we need to upgrade. Could we consider upgrading the design of our books to the exquisite level of our editorial quality? Nicely put. Production manager said to me, insubordination is your middle name. A few months later, when I had a call from Marsha Honoré, a call from his secretary, Mr. Honoré would like to see you in his office. I thought, oops, I'm getting fired. So I went into his office. Who would you say is the best graphic designer in Canada today? Uh-oh, what does he want? What's happening to you? And, uh, and so I hedged, you know, well, a lot of things. He's, what about Alan Fleming? Okay, the tops. So he told me Alan was coming to the press, and they were going to establish a separate design department, and would I like to stay with the production department or move to the design department? <laughs> uh, without a, so that was the beginning of change. Alan came to the department, and the first thing he did was call a meeting of the, the two designers and me and talked about his, his style. He said <laughs> he sent them scurrying to the dictionary to figure out the meaning of the word eclectic. <laughs> and it was great. We grew. We got, we got more space. Alan was a star. And it showed itself, it obviously, showed in itself. the books. Alan's relationship with the editorial department was good. They respected yeah. him and what he did, whereas they had no reason to respect the existing design department, yeah. Yeah. particularly. And because he was a star, it forced them to acknowledge that design was important. And mm. they did the detailed markup of the manuscripts. I mean, you know what is mark marking a manuscript up for typesetting is a monumental task. You know, and for a scholarly publication, oh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages and very detailed kinds of things. So could so, you uh, identify some of the books then that really illustrated the change? We did several books with Ralph Greenhill's photographs. One of them was on Toronto. This would have been about 68. When did he come He in? came in 68. Oh, one of the first things he did when he arrived, was, I mean, we were interested in the photographic book, and he was interested in the photographic book. Mm. And Ansel Adams was doing a workshop out in California. My husband was from California, and I sort of wanted to go out and see his parents who were out there then, see his family, and take my daughter out. And Ansel Adams was doing this workshop at the uh, University of Santa Cruz with a couple of book designers, fabulous designers from Rochester, I think. And one of the first things Alan did was enable that. So you're happy yeah. with him I'm then. happy with him, yeah. We would want to look then for the photography books. books. The photographic books, 68, 69. Yes, 68, 69, 70. Rural Ontario is one. Yeah, I know that it's one. Book of photographs. Barnes, one on Barnes by somebody. Barnes structure. Can't remember the name of who that was. Rural Ontario, laying out these photographs. And one of the things that Alan taught me particularly is that when you're placing a photograph on a page, it's not a shape. It has content. And he said these two pages together are a wall. If you look through the wall, the photographs are what you're seeing on the other side of the wall. There's just a hole in the wall. How are they related to each other? How do they connect? 
so particularly when, if he was doing landscapes and things, it wasn't as simple as aligning the horizon line, which is already, you know, great. I mean, that itself is a concept. So it's not, it's not just you're aligning the top of the photographs. Why would you align the top of the photographs? Why? Why would you align the bottom of the photographs? You arrange the photographs for the content of the image. So in other words, it doesn't have to go straight across, straight across. the page. It no. could be uh, you look one above the, the other, like a step. Or content a of the image, yeah, because it's, it's, a, it's a wall that you're looking through. You're placing the photograph in the world. It's not a, a thing on a page. It's an image in the world. When I did Niagara, that yes. was one of the things that I had in mind. And so most of the photographs for, or, and images are of the falls. And so what I, I thought, well, Niagara Falls always has to fall from the same place. So the photographs may be up and down and everything, but the falls uh-huh. is the line that goes through. Okay, and it always comes sad. down from the falls, right? Yes. And I also wanted a font that was vertical. What, that emphasized the, the, vertical, the vertical of a, a waterfall? Yes, yeah. I think it's perpetual. Right. Perpetual. And careful counting so that so that we could get the breaks right. Counting the manuscript so that you have you have eight pages of this and not six or not seven. You had to make the break properly. And and then there are twenty four pages of this and then you have four pages of photographs and then you have some, some text and, and so they couldn't believe it that I could actually count the text and make it break to, to make it work, that the text could break into chapters that way. That was in sixty nine. That was in sixty nine, so that, oh God, that was must have been my first big book after Alan came. Now how long yeah. would you have spent on what on this one book, do you think? Well, there was another book, Niagara on the Lake. That you did. Either I did it or Alan did it. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Okay. And that had drawings in it. It was fine line drawings. So we're in about 69 then. So Alan's been there for that year. And you are Laurie Lewis. I am Laurie Lewis, yeah. Still and always Laurie Lewis. So we're looking at Niagara Mm -hmm. by Ralph Greenhill. Did you feel the cloth? I mean, that was such a time when we could use real cloth. Real cloth. That was one of the things I absolutely loved was looking at the paper and textures and color and so how would you have gone about choosing the texture of the cloth we have books of samples at the u of t they had their own printing press though. and they had a bindery uh, they had a binder so binder. you would have actually been able to go in and watch them making your book if you well, wanted to well you didn't really do that it was a commercial press yeah yeah, yeah. it was a union shop and <laughs> besides that <laughs> if I, as a female, went in, it meant they would have had to do something about the calendars that they had posted on. <laughs> you know, about printing shops. Yeah. Right? Okay, so... So we're in there, and we're producing all these fabulous books. And choosing the, the and paper. Cho- yes, and choosing the fabric, cho- choosing the binding materials, and the, and the end papers, and the, choosing the colors. And, and that's one, one of the other things, is to have this huge resource of the kinds of binding materials that were available, the different kinds of cloths, and even leathers. We did leather binding later, later on. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I have to go back a bit. Before Alan came, and I was still doing my job as sort of art director, besides working with the house designers, if a book was especially important, sometimes I went outside and I got an outside designer. So I hired Sam Smart to do a lot of things. And one of the books that he did was The Crown Jewels of Iran. I didn't have the sense at that time or the ego to put myself down as art director, but I should have because I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing, choosing a designer and working with the designer and doing that stuff. Anyway, I remember when we did The Crown Jewels of Iran, (laughs) Sam wanted it. I think it's set in Optima, I believe. Optima and something else. 
Anyway, we were in some meeting about this, and the assistant director, Eleanor Harmon, just went mad. She said, we have our own typesetting equipment. We have a whole plant that does typesetting and printing, and why would he have to typeset in a font that we didn't have? Just raging. I was ready to throw my typewriter at her, and I was so angry, so angry. <laughs> and Sam and I met and went to lunch. We went to the, what was then the Celebrity Club. We lunched down in the basement, a wonderful place to eat and drink. And I got so totally pissed. And I phoned my boss at the office and told her how ill I was and sorry that I wasn't going to get back there this afternoon. It's only the second time in my life I've ever done that. First time was at New York, a double day. But did you get your way in the end? I mean, of course, of course. But it was just the wrestle about yeah, it. Yeah, the fact that you even the, had to go that, through that. That you had to go through it. Yeah. And not only have to go through it once, twice, but you have to go through it. And I had to be respectful to her. Yeah. Whereas she did not have to be respectful to me or to Sam or to the book or to the process. She was a fierce woman. Wonderful. Fierce as all hell. So that's another book on our that's, list. Yes. The binding of that is particularly wonderful. You see these as, as a, prog- a progression? Yes, yes. Like because it Breaking was, new ground? Absolutely. Now. Breaking new ground. Maybe not for book publishing in general, but certainly for U of T Press, in that it allowed them, even before Alan came, to move their scholarly books, I mean, that, that was what they did, scholarly books, out into the bigger world, too, so that people who were not even particularly interested in gemnology might buy a book on the crown jewels of Iran mm-hmm. because of the way it was presented, because mm-hmm. of the not only the photographs, but the whole book itself as a physical object, apart from the content. Yeah. And I think Harold Kushenska started that with the McLuhan book, The Gutenberg Galaxy. Gutenberg Galaxy, because a lot of people bought that as a physical object. Isn't this an unusual book? to begin to tap into that other market. Sean I've read his memoir. Yes, uh-huh. In those, he, or that book, he talks about his desire to let the world know about the yes. U of T. Press. Yes, that's right. Well, you know, it's hard to tell the dividing line between ambition and ego, but it was his job. This is his corporation, this is his business. It's his job to make it bigger in the world. And he was one of the people who was really busily organizing the Canadian publishers into a unit because Canada at the time was flooded with American books and British books. And there wasn't much of Canadian publishing that regarded itself as a national publishing industry. So genre was very much part of that. And that's a legitimate aim for any business is to make their products better and to fund more of a market. I mean, he had to be strong. And he had to cover his costs, yes. but his mission wasn't necessarily just profit, I That's imagine. Right, yeah. You have to cost. make some money on some books so that you subsidize others. I mean, it's not a, the book is not a single pot. It's mm-hmm. not you have to make them cover your costs on this book no. by the sales of this book. We We're don't not. call it profit. We call it excess recovery. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's move then to the relationship between genre and... And, uh, Fleming. And, uh, yes, yes. What was that like? 
Yeah, I should have a photograph I should show you. Well, it'll be in the next book. Anyway, the wonderful photograph when Alan came to the press, Marshall Ray arranged for a big party at the university club at a very upscale. I don't know why Marshall isn't in the photograph. I don't think he liked to be photographed, or maybe he had to be out of town or something. But anyway, there we all are, and there's Alan looking so fabulous, and there am I looking very New York. <laughs> Alan brought a level of taste and... Sophistication. Sophistication. Exactly. The book comes to mind, The Economic Atlas of Ontario. Yes, I know the economic, yes, yeah, I worked on that a lot. I remember being in a production meeting. Production on that is so complicated. I mean, the whole, the the process by which the film was made, it was printed in 17 columns or something. And the the cartographer should get credit for at least 70% of that design. That book won the most beautiful Beautiful book book in the the world. world. Yeah, that year. It was wonderful. And the production process was not one that could be handled routinely through the production department. And I remember mapping out the time frame. Okay, my schedule says 14 months. And they were just crazy. It only takes nine months to make a baby, somebody said. And I think it was 17 months, not 14, 17 yeah. months. Well, it's a, it's a but, huge uh, elephant. Yes. Well, but from the bigger. time Jeff first came to us with the idea and explained the processes involved, it's called peel coating. That book, it was before Alan. Definitely his name yeah, was I know, on it. I knew his name was on it, but it started before Alan. When Jeff talked to us about how the maps were scribed and that we could go directly from scribe to printing film, because I know Sam picked up on that scribing concept for the Crown Jewels of Iran. It's a mechanical drawing on something that's like film but isn't. It's not a drawing. It's mechanically removing an opaque layer from something like film. Which lets the light go through. And yes, I know Alan's name got on the atlas. But Jeff, you see, I don't even remember his name. And this fabulous, fabulous cartographer. It's a visual, visual display of quantitative information. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's more than just you stack it up, oh, this much is this high and this much is that high. It's representing that in a different way, which Jeff did. In a beautiful way. In a beautiful way. Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Okay, so what about the relationship between Jenneray and and Fleming? How did that affect the um, Well, it, it was good. Jenneray, li- Alan was a star, and Jenneray liked. He that recognized guy. that. He yeah. recognized that, and the press produced wonderful, wonderful books. All those Alan's good years. He had uh, five good years. Five yeah. really good years before his heart attack. And when he had his heart attack, he was involved in doing the hymn book. And I was working with him on that for United Church Anglican Church. I've heard of the hymn that. book. Yes, that's another. That's another seminal. One. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And why? Well, again, Alan's particular attention to detail, absolute detail. The music was typeset in Germany. I mean, typesetting music was new. Music was scribed, not in the same way the maps were scribed, but different kind of scribing. But it was scribed, that is, cut into metal, not not scribed in film at that point. So it was almost like an etching. And the words within the music also were done that way in a font that is very, very close to Bembo. Uh, I mean, that was Alan's choice. There were some fonts available, and that was the one he chose. So the music was done there, and, and just technically it was a difficult job. I remember thinking at the time that we should document the technology because it was so difficult and so unusual, and that if anybody ever wanted to do another hymn book, they would have to 
know this stuff. Well, of course they don't, because the technology, it's all changed. Now I can do anything. Well, that's the your thing I think can about, write the music for you. <laughs> yeah, about, about book design yeah. now, is just, you can do so many things yes, yeah. much more yes. easily. That's right. You can only appreciate all the work yes. that's involved in producing something yes. similar back yes. then. That, that's really when what you, you want to marvel the, over. Moving from the thing you print from being a physical object, a big chunk of wood or a chunk of metal all tied together with string, moving from that into then film. And from film, you're going to make a plate, and you're going to print from the plate onto a blanket, and then from the blanket onto the paper. And this, right? How complicated. The design office at U of G Press, my design office then, Ellen was gone by then, mm. and everything was changing, was the first design office in Canada in Macintosh. I've got this little Macintosh, little baby like this, Lisa, which is a typesetting thing from Macintosh. I saw that, and then I dragged them to a demo for the, for the Mac. And I said, I want one of those. I have to have one of those. He said, what are you going to use it for? And I said, I don't know. He said, write something and send me a memo. So I did. I wrote something, and I sent him a memo, and we got this little thing. It had a small footprint, they say. It was about this size, and they considered it portable. There was a grip on the top. Eight and a half, eleven. Mac was brilliant, brilliant design. I would tear out ads from newspapers and give them to the designers and sit them in front of the Mac and say, okay, you work on this and make it look like that. Just play with it. Figure out how it works. I mean, they were exacto and paper and rubber cement. Prior to that. That's what we were all doing. That's what everybody had to do. But now you can do it all on the screen. You can do it on the screen, but not only... The other thing that doing it on the screen means is that there's no such thing as an original. Everything is an original. When you print, if laser printing, everything yeah. is an original. There's no original that you then copy from. Well, there's no original paste out, right? There's no original paste out. If you're, and if you're printing laser, there's no image. Well, each one is, each is one, printed each out. One, okay, from, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. That's like, in a way, like going back to stone litho, where the stone, stone is, is in the machine. Image. Yeah, the, the stone, stone is, is in the, the mark. Yeah. yeah. The stone is in the mark, yeah. The hymn book. So like his last major major production, really. Yeah, okay. He was doing that when he had his heart attack. I flew proofs out to him in Halifax. Perhaps I can just get you to summarize <laughs> what you think about the U of T Press and Fleming, yes. your involvement, yes. just some general okay. thoughts. I, I, I will just say it was a, a magical, wonderful time when we all, everybody involved, felt the books were important because it was acknowledged. Oh, I have to say something else about U of T Press. Will Reuter. We hired Will Reuter away from Sam. He, he, Will was working for Sam Smart, and we stole him from there. Leslie Smart Associates. Do you know Robert McDonald? Yes. Robert McDonald was hippie living, you know, in a little house down the street. Yeah. He came in smelling of exotic substances every day. I mean, Alan hired him, and what Robert did was he surrounded himself with visuals of a, a font he was working on and wanted to know about and put it all around him. So it was in his little cubicle, and there he was, and he would do nothing, nothing but that font for, you know, a month or so. Then he'd go to something else. Anyway, Robert was was fascinating. So he's in the, this photograph that I have. I have the photograph with all of us, with Alan and Will and Ancha and Robert and me. That's good. Yeah. I'll show it to you. 
Yeah, you said that books were important. And, and there were design were... competitions then, and, and we started winning. With, I mean, the idea of sending books off to design competitions. I mean, they were important. The federal government decided they were going to back some design competitions for yeah. books and other things. In order to do that, they had to have a national organization to give money to. It was because of that that the GDC became a national organization. You and know, the GDC stands for? Graphic Designers of Canada. Previously the... Typographic Designers of Canada. They had a big fight when yes. they changed from typographic to graphic. People yeah. are going to keep bringing pictures in here. Anyway, graphic, the Society of Graphic Designers of Canada was its full name then. Anyway, the, they made me a fellow for helping to make them a national organization. So the federal government helped to fund design competitions uh, for books, among other things. Now, this you have to know is that the money for funding all of these stuff came out of the wood products division because books were a wood product. They had to be... <laughs> the wood products division of what? Industry of, of Canada? The industry, Trade and Commerce. Because books are, if they're printed on Canadian paper, that's a Canadian wood product. Anyway, so that was wonderful to be able to submit books in for competition. Yeah, when government buys into the celebration of yes, a book. Yes, the celebration of a book. Every government is interested in its own image and its own prestige. And that was at a time when that particular government was interested in building the image of, of Canada, nation-building concept. And books were just were, were part of that. So there were a lot of book design competitions. So there was a major Canadian on the look of, look of books. But that only went for several years. It went for several years. And the catalogs are probably still around. I have some of those. And the AIGA. I mean, it was modeled on the American, American Institute of Graphic Arts uh, book design competition, which was an annual competition. So we did that, and that was always very exciting to choose which books we were going to submit. And it was also a bit of a political thing because you had to make the designers feel comfortable that, yes, you were going to submit <laughs> their work. Their work, yeah. Yeah. Good, good times, wonderful times. Well, thanks for sharing them with us. Okay. It's been wonderful. I've been speaking with Lori Lewis, yes. who for many years was designer and design manager mm -hmm. of, of books. Mm -hmm. That's one life. Yes. You subsequently yes. evolved. I retired in 1990 and left Toronto. I moved to Kingston because it was close enough to Toronto that I could commute a couple of days a week, which I continued doing, but it was far enough away that I could actually afford to live here. So I moved here with a sick husband and a sick mother, and I made soup for 10 years. <laughs> and then after that, I started writing. So I'm a late bloomer, very much a late bloomer. And the name of your first? The first book is Little Comrades, and it got one, I made the Globe and Mail Top 100 Books of the Year. And Tim Ingster, of Porcupine's Quill, my tiny perfect publisher, I call him, said they hadn't had a book reviewed by the Globe and Mail for over 10 years. So they were very excited. My, my lovely little book, lovely little memoir, Little Comrades. I'm still doing book clubs and doing gigs around to mostly to women's associations. Next week I do the Brockville Women's Association. Yeah, promoting that book. Promoting that book. And, and my next book. Which is? And the next book is Love and All That Jazz, which covers the next stage of my life from about the mid-50s the New York jazz days, and then the Toronto days. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that <laughs> eagerly. Thanks Good. again for your time. You're very, very welcome.